Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 291 being recorded on Thursday, April 28th. 2022. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. It is a Thursday in April, late April, and that means it's Amazon results. So we're going to take everyone through the results that came out today, talk a little macroeconomic and uh, a little bit of e-com news if we have time. But Jason, I wanted your hot take on Elon buying Twitter. Are you freaking out? Uh, I am not freaking out, but I'm having to have a lot more conversations with people about it than I might have expected. Uh, pe- people are uh, super interested in following it closely. Yeah, I had. Uh, um, I think I'm not freaking out, but I think one because everyone is freaking out, they may be looking over a little per- little kind of idea I had, which is if. The logic path goes like this. The, the ad model on Twitter hasn't worked um, since they went public. It hasn't really grown or done anything. Um, the subscription model is tricky. And if you do have Elon doing this, he obviously understands e-commerce really well with because uh, he helped create PayPal. Yeah, I think it could be an interesting experiment to do a hybrid, some kind of a subscription type program. But also, I think if anyone could take a run at actually doing e-commerce right inside of Twitter, um, building a marketplace of some kind, uh, I think that would be interesting to see him take a run at that. Um, now we could have the whole, you know, you don't go to a cocktail party to buy stuff conversation. But I do think there is something there where if you are a influencer and, you know, obviously Instagram is starting to figure this out, all the live streams. I think there's something there that Twitter could monetize. Um, so we'll see that I, I, that's kind of what I'm thinking more uh, versus, you know, make, you know, yeah. that kind of losing my, I, my I, mind. Kind of. I think if you're a traditional advertiser that has for what, like benefited from the advertising model, like you're concerned because there's potential disruption, but I'm with you. I think there's, the the rate of change is likely to increase at Twitter. Like Twitter had been, you know, somewhat stagnant for a while. So like I'm always excited to see interesting new experiments and trials. So um I, I suspect we'll see some uh some clever new ideas at least attempted to be implemented in that. And you know, some of them I'm sure will be cool. Side note, and I sh- maybe shouldn't disclose this on the podcast, uh I'm a pretty long term user of Twitter. I was like in the first million users. I'm pretty sure I've never seen an ad on Twitter. Really? I see them all the time. Uh, so what, I haven't figured out why it is I don't see them. Like I have a a verified account and I don't know if there's some oily status where like they don't show as many ads, but I also primarily use Twitter through apps and it just, it doesn't seem like any of the apps show ads. Hmm. Do you use a web browser or do you use like uh uh, tweet well, deck or something like I that. use the well the apps use the twitter app yeah i use the twitter app the old apps don't really work anymore because they limited them to like some they're all hobbled at this point 
So except for TweetDeck, which is owned by Twitter. It's like an alternative mm-hmm. app owned by Twitter that I still use. Okay. And, I didn't know that yeah. still existed. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, I've like hesitated to deep dive into why I don't see ads because I'm grateful that I don't. But, yeah. but uh, show yeah. me ads. Yeah, As the but, chief digital ad officer, you should be seeing ads, though. I, I do think that's pretty important. Every time I watch a TV show and my wife fast forwards through all the ads, I'm like, I'm like, I say, you you realize those ads paid for this house, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so, I'm sorry, probably <laughs> advertisers listening. Well, I saw on Twitter that you have been spending some time in the metaverse. What's that all about? I have. Uh, it's kind of fun. Uh, I got invited to a conference that was put on by Meta, aka Facebook, and uh, the reason I was interested in it was not necessarily the topic. Uh, they were hosting this 800 person event in the metaverse. So they sent us all their latest headsets, which is the used to be called the Oculus quest two. Now it's called the meta quest two. Um, but I hadn't really looked at their hardware since the, the first generation that you and I bought the, the Oculus rift, which required a pretty beefy computer and a bunch of sensors and cables. And, uh, I was, pleasantly surprised by the onboarding experience like you just take this thing out of the box doesn't have any cables doesn't require any external sensors and it seems like it works uh way better and easier than the old hardware so that was kind of fun and it was kind of fun to see the early iterations of how facebook envisions like 200 people having a virtual meeting in uh uh in the metaverse i'm not sure it's uh, super exciting or that the experience has been nailed yet. This is like very much a 1.0 kind of thing, but it's, it's fun to see, you know, people inventing new things. Cool. Yeah. A lot of those things, you just kind of like you fiddle with your avatar for a while. And then as you're sitting there watching other people, you're like, what is going on? Cause their hands are moving all weird as they're like typing or something. Yeah. They have a very like accurate looking avatars. And I'm like, that's the last thing I want. Yeah. I want to be Brad Pitt for, Exactly. The number one reason to go in the metaverse is to look better. Indeed. Indeed. Well, they they apparently opted not to do that for this conference. (laughs) Well, we we had mentioned doing a Web3 deep dive, and I got a lot of listeners that reached out and said they would really like to see that. So we need to put that on our agenda. Yeah. Uh, It may be hard to let them see that, but we could definitely let them hear it. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know what I mean? I do. <laughs> that request for us to do a podcast. I'm just, I'm just feisty tonight. I don't know why. I think it's because we're talking about Amazon. You're pedantic. No. Uh, so you want to kick us off with a little view of what's going on in the macro before we jump into some micro? Yeah. Um, so in general, the macroeconomics are kind of a Debbie Downer. Um, and, you know, I, I am spending an awful lot of time talking with retailers and brands that are kind of planning for a lean uh, sort of next nine months as a result of that. But kind of to frame this up, um, you know, the the marquee negative macro is inflation, uh, which there's a bunch of ways to measure it. It's a wildly imperfect thing. But the, the most popular uh, uh, like general inflation number we use, we're now at 8.54%, which is a 40-year high. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so inflation is very high. Um, another one we look at is, uh, uh, like various, uh, credit worthiness. And so like mortgage delinquencies is a good proxy for consumer health. 
And uh, mortgage delinquencies aren't alarmingly high yet, but they're uh, in the last quarter they ticked up. Um, and so that that is a potential early indicator. Um, uh, a bigger indicator that we don't like is to see the the savings rate decline. And so um, historically, like for the last 10 years, I would say uh, that the average savings rate has been about 8%. So consumers save about 8% of their income. Uh, during the pandemic, we had the highest savings rates ever because consumers got really conservative and they were gifted a lot of extra money in terms of economic stimulus. So it like briefly spiked over 20%. Um, but now it's back down below the, uh, it's at a 10 year low now. So it's at 6.6%. So that says, uh, that all of that inflation has kind of sucked all the savings out of the, the U.S. consumer and we're starting to see more defaults. Uh, I don't have data on it, but one that I've heard is alarming is we're starting to see a high default rate on all those buy now, pay later services that everyone, you know, has gotten attached to. Um, I've been in the housing market lately. And, uh, for those that don't know, the, you know, mortgages are starting to, to really shoot up. Uh, so the, the kind of traditional 30 year fixed, uh, mortgage rate is up at 5.1% uh, now. Um, it was at the during the pandemic. It was down below three, uh, and then you know uh, a a particularly alarming one is GDP, um, which uh, you know we had been kind of growing in that that uh, one to two percent a quarter, and uh, you know we just got the 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 um, Q. I want to say I think it's just Q four. Um, GDP and it was expected to be up 1% and it was actually down 1.4%. So the economy shrunk, which uh, was alarming. And then you roll all that up and uh, you and I have talked about this being a little bit of a mixed bag, but there's these consumer confidence indexes. And the one I, I look at is the University of Michigan survey. Um, and so they have it kind of indexed against 100. And so uh, right now, uh, the, the consumer confidence survey is at a five-year low. So it's lower right now than at any point during the pandemic. Uh, and it's at 65.7. And so often, uh, the con consumer confidence erodes before the consumer's actual financial health erodes, but, uh, spending tends to, to, uh, correlate with consumer confidence more than, than actual, um, uh, economic, uh, macros. So, so that's a particularly alarming one to the retailers. The one, uh, thing I would say is bright is, uh, as I've talked about before, uh, you know, in general, retailers did really well in the pandemic and, and sales, um, were quite a bit higher, uh, over the, the last two years. And, uh, we haven't really seen them tick down there. The rate of growth has dramatically slowed. Uh, so March retail sales versus a year ago was up 5.5%, but you know, that's up 40% versus two years ago. And Q1 of this year was up 10.8% versus last year. It's up 30% versus two years ago. Um, so retail sales are still strong. What, uh, you know, some, some people would rightly point out, however, is what we, what's hard to measure is how much of those, of those increases in retail sales in Q1 were actually from that inflation, right? So, you know, unit sales could have been down significantly uh, because prices were up so much. Yeah, I just uh, one of our interns handed me a note. The GDP is a uh, quarterly, so that's the Q1 result. 
they do frequently update those kind of after the fact as they get more data in. So, but I don't, usually it's kind of fractional. So I don't think it's going to swing to a positive, sadly. Yeah. So you roll all that up and let me just say, like, I we went into two strong years in January and February. A lot of people were planning a lot of aggressive um, investments. And I, and it feels to me like people are like really curtailing those investment plans as, and are starting to hunker down for, for a, a potentially rough economic uh, year. So yeah. we, we shall see. Are, so when you're out there talking to clients or few people kind of saying, cause right now everyone's maybe they've already done it. Maybe they're kind of making their fourth quarter planning decisions. Right. So it's kind of like a very, very, cloudy crystal ball oh yeah i've i've already like finished a bunch of holiday campaign plans um so i i've been talking like christmas toys nonstop for the last three, <laughs> three weeks which is a little weird but yeah uh and you know they're like there there is a uh inflation layer to everybody's uh holiday plans right now um and you know uh uh hopefully uh we get to use the the optimistic version and not the pessimistic version, but everyone's planning for, you know, potentially going into Q4 in a not great shape. Hmm. Okay. Well, you're Mr. Cheerful. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> you're going to tell me not to worry about any of that because Amazon made a bazillion dollars, right? Well, wah, wah. Uh, also not great news on the Amazon front. So part of the setup here is we are lapping Q1 2021, where COVID was still a huge tailwind for for Amazon. You know, we were still we weren't shut shut in per se uh, or locked down, but there was still you know very little air travel and people weren't out doing stuff. Um, and then also last year there was a Prime Day in Q1, so that's not this year. So that swings the numbers some to some degree. And then just a blanket statement, uh, whenever Jason and I cover these things, we always go with the data that excludes the any changes from financial currencies, what what Wall Street would call XFX. So so minus is the X, any any currency kind of changes. So so that neutralizes the currency stuff, which has actually been oscillating quite a lot with the the whole Ukrainian Russian thing. Um so, but we, we take that out. So we try to get kind of a neutral currency view of what's going on. So it was a really interesting earnings this year uh, or this quarter because, uh, you know, we, we had um, Netflix come out and really kind of miss their number. And, um, you know, there, there's a family of public companies that everyone thought there was a new normal, but it was actually this kind of COVID pull forward that has gone away. So Zoom... Peloton are, are in that camp. And now it's looking like maybe Netflix is there. Um, Shopify. Yep. Shopify. Shopify's. Well, I think Shopify has a whole another world of hurt. We'll talk about uh, here. Um, the other, the other surprising thing of Netflix is just kind of randomly on the call, Reed Hastings, the CEO kind of said, Oh, and we're looking at an ad model. And I think it like surprised people inside the company hadn't even been briefed on this. So, uh, so that's good for you. So, so good news. I think maybe an ad model is coming to Netflix. So more, more ads for you to, to go sell and do your thing with. Yeah. But um, honestly, I think no one heard that because he's right before that, he said, we're going to stop letting everybody share passwords. <laughs> and I think that's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so, so yes. Yeah, so you can tell they're, they're scrambling to, to kind of, 
they're opening their minds to things they never thought that they would look at before because the subscription, um, they actually had a you know, loss of net subscribers. Um, even when you take out, they had turned off Russian subscribers. And even if you take that out, it was net negative. Um, and then Google was really interesting because you and I, I think we're actually pretty clearly some of the first people to talk about how worried we were about the IDFA. Some people call this ATT. I don't, I don't like to call it that. I call it the IDFA. So the, the, the blanket term we'll just use is the, the Amazon, the Apple privacy changes. And Google's results were interesting because Google has a lot of businesses inside of there. Google core is immune from the Apple privacy changes because they are the search partner of Apple. So, so you just go right in there. They have access to all the delicious cookies and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then also they, they, you know, search is nice because you get this intent in the form of the search term. So you don't have to guess what someone's trying to do and use all this ad technology to figure it out. Um, that being said, the YouTube part of the business got hammered and, uh, reading through, you know, because Apple's a big partner of theirs, but also a competitor, um, you kind of you had to parse their language really carefully, but it seemed like YouTube uh, was hurt hard enough that it really, really kind of uh, ended up putting pressure on the overall business. Um, even though the core search business was was pretty resilient through the changes, so that was interesting. Um, and then, you know, what's gonna what's gonna make this even worse? Just broadly, is they are pretty publicly stating they're going to bring a lot of those changes to the Android platform. So it was kind of an Apple only platform problem, but now Android's going to replicate many of those no tracking, uh, hiding your email, all these kinds of things that, that, you know, are overall good for consumers to some degree. Uh, maybe they're going a little too far uh, because there is some benefit for having, you know, good, good product recommendations and those kinds of things that are, are I think are getting hurt from this. Um, but yeah, so, so that is all getting worse. So then Facebook, so then everyone was like, oh man, this is going to be really bad for Facebook. But I think what Facebook did is they kind of kitchen synced it last time. And they basically said in fourth quarter, wow, this Apple stuff's bad. Let's just go ahead. And if we're going to rip the bandaid, let's rip that thing off with chest hair and all. <laughs> and they, um, they, they actually did less worse than everyone expected. So that was a relief, uh, which is we're kind of in that market. And so I think, you know, they, they had predicted that it would be really, really terrible and it was only terrible. Um, uh, and then, uh, Apple's revenues were up 9%, which was in this climate is, is a, a win. It's very low for Apple, but, but a win. Uh, and that brings us to Amazon results. Anything from those who wanted to opine on before we jump into Amazon? No, just I think the Apple earnings were today, and I, I would say they were surprisingly upbeat, like both, like they talked about the macros, but they, uh, you know, what would what you would expect to be particularly acute concern to Apple is supply chain, um, yeah. given that a bunch of their factories are locked down and closed in China right now. Um, and uh, Tim Cook seemed like quite optimistic that they had a solid supply chain plan go forward. So I hope he's right. Because I'm going to want my new iPhone. If anyone would have a handle on that, it would be Tim Cook. So, so I yeah, feel like no, I, he, I, I mean, yeah. I, I, he, he's credible. I wasn't uh, saying yeah. he was wrong. I was just yeah. pleasantly surprised to hear. I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about feeling like they have their hand, uh, arms around supply chain this year. So that was an outlier to me. Well, they had talked about. 
I think it was a year ago, diversifying out of China into, was it Singapore or Vietnam? I think it may have been Vietnam. So I think they've got a couple, you know, they, they have diversified their, their manufacturing portfolio across multiple countries. So maybe that that's part of the resilience that they're seeing there. Or maybe they think those cities that are locked down in China will get back to it. But by the time they have some new iPhone or something. Yeah. And I do think they have this privileged status where when the, their factories get locked down, they get locked down with the workers in them. So <laughs> there is that. <laughs> so productivity's up. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to shelter in place, you might as well do it on the assembly line, making the Apple phones. Uh, okay. So let's jump into Amazon results and start with revenue. So uh, the little bit of a tale of two cities here. So online product sales went negative uh, at minus 1%, which obviously isn't good. Um, you know, some Wall Street analysts did the math and they pulled out the comp um, to, to the Amazon Prime Day. And I think that made it basically neutral. So not up or down, um, but still, you know, not something you want to see here. I, I guess if GDP is decreasing, you know, Zero is the new win, but but not what you expect from Amazon. And, and clearly one of the, you know, I would, I need to go back and look at 08 and 09. It went negative in those years. Uh, I was going to ask you because I, I couldn't remember it going negative. It did. Yeah, okay. I have a chart in a presentation and it goes, e-commerce went like negative 20 and Amazon went negative five. Um, so it was better. It always is tracked considerably better than the e-commerce data. <clears throat> but it did go negative for a period of a quarter or two in 08 and 09. I want to say Q4 of 8 and Q1 of 9 is my memory, but I'll, I'll fact check that. Um, conversely, subscription services were up 13%. And in there is Prime and, and um, you know, all the things associated with Prime. So so that's interesting. Uh, and then you had some commentary from the call that you heard around that that, that I'll say for you. Um, unit sales were flat. And in the commentary on the call, they talked about that being due to inflation. So, so you know, they're, they're starting to say, hey, we're seeing the signs of inflation here. Um, and uh, where fuel is rising and supply chain. And, and they're, they're starting to kind of, you know, throw a lot of these things out there um, that, you know, I think we're doing this the evening of the report. So I think wall street's not going to really like this whole body language coming out of Amazon overall growth. When you scroll together, all the Amazon business units, you get to 7% growth, which is the slowest um, growth uh, since the recession of 0809. Um, and if you compare that to Q4 uh, of, of 21, which, you know, it's year of year growth of Q4 20, um, that was 9.5%. So a pretty material slowdown quarter on quarter from the growth rates here that we're seeing. They do split out a couple segments. So North America was up 7.6% all in. Um, and then where they felt a lot of pressure was international, which was down 6%. So it feels like, you know, internationally non-US has, is, is actually, kind of in a worse slide from a macroeconomic and we're starting to feel it here as well. Um, so that was that. And then physical retail was up 16%, but that's an easy comp because you've got, you know, people weren't going to stores, largely whole foods makes that up. Um, this is a good time. You and I haven't had a chance to talk about it, but they did announce that they're closing a lot of their stores. So here we had a, it was interesting. We had just opened a five-star store or four-star uh, whatever that is. <laughs> and, yeah, five star. um, and then they closed it. Like it was literally open for like 45 days. I didn't get a chance to go to it. And they're, they're closing a lot of those bookstores and, and whatnot, uh, 
and that's uh, been attributed to the new CEO Jassy um, saying, "Hey, we're not going to really pursue that strategy anymore." Yeah, yeah, it was a little surprising because the you know there was a decent fleet of the bookstores. They closed them all. The five star stores, um, the the stores that were saved were the grocery stores. So obviously Whole Foods, but also these Amazon Freshes. They they added like six more. Um, so they're at like forty six now. If I'm if I'm counting right, and then they have announced a new fashion store that's supposed to open this quarter in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and as far as I know, plans are still uh, on to to do that. But yeah, it was surprising that the the bookstore uh, here in my neighborhood closed as well. Cool. And then you were watching the profit side of Amazon. What did you see there? Yeah. Um, well, the they you know they talked a lot about all of these macro pressures and you know uh, those those all having an impact on rising costs. So. Labor costs were up, fuel costs were up, um, and you know overall supply chain was significantly more expensive. Uh, they talked about uh, shipping expenses reached thirty eight percent of revenues, and like com- in comparison, that normally is about thirty two percent. You know, fuel being a, a big factor in all all of those shipping costs, um, and so roll all that in, and they made three point six billion for the quarter, which is uh, like a three point two percent margin. Uh, and I think the consensus estimate was like four point six. So uh, a meaningful miss on the margins. Um, and it's interesting because you know normally these negative macro things they 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 it's they can have a weird effect because when the ma- the inflation is high but consumer confidence is okay it actually increases demand because you sell the same amount of stuff and you sell it for a higher price but once consumer confidence starts dropping people start buying less right so you know amazon you can see that demand dropping on the top line so that's a concern and then all of their costs go up because of all these macros and so the margins take a bigger hit and so that's a a big concern. And then in their, their commentary, there was this interesting um, narrative around Amazon inadvertently ended up with too much capacity. Um, so per- primarily in their, their um, uh, logistics network. So, uh, you know, over the last two years, they famously have doubled their, their um, warehouse capacity, um, which now I think in total is over a hundred billion dollar investment. Um, and, uh, they also hired a ton of people uh, during COVID. They had a lot of people on COVID leave, so they backfilled a lot of positions. And then all those people came back, and they apparently had too much labor. So too many warehouses and too much labor equals uh, a hit on margins as well. And so a lot of their narrative was around uh, their their expected focus on improving the efficiency of that supply chain uh, this next quarter, um, which means they have to either get more goods into their network and do more stuff. And, I, you know, I think we're, uh, if we have time, we'll talk about uh, some new programs Amazon's rolling out that might do that. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if they uh, shrink or at least slow the rate of their labor force growth um, uh, based on some of these comments as well. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, one Wall Street analysts kind of rolled all that together and kind of put a $6 billion number on it, which, which is kind of, you know, wow, that that's a 
it's a lot of headwinds that they're facing there. So it'll be interesting to see, do, you know, do they read the tea leaves and take that capacity out? Or do you just kind of keep it in place for a holiday? Because the comps will get easier through the year, right? Because, you know, things were, were less crazy um, COVID wise from the second half of last year. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, they, they both rightly pointed out like, Hey, we're, we're glad we made the investments we did. Like they put us in a strong position. Um, you know, he's like, don't, don't pay too much attention to year over year comps. Cause we're comping against such a weird year. The way to think of this is, um, that sales are way up and they're mostly staying up. Right. <laughs> so that that's kind of the, the, the management spin on, on the circumstance, but there for sure are headwinds. And I would say, uh, if Amazon is feeling headwinds, the vast majority of other retailers are feeling, um, like a head storms because, uh, you know, Amazon has more levers and more scale to insulate them from a lot of these challenges. Yeah. So, so rough spot on, on the cost side. How about, um, Usually the bright spot is AWS. How did that do? Yeah. Uh, so that uh, is exactly the opposite. Like um, demand, uh, you know, one of the things they talked about is like a lot of people rethought their their infrastructure needs as, as a result of COVID and it's greatly accelerated uh, people's migrations to the cloud. So, so it had a good run during uh, the pandemic and it continues to go uh, uh, gangbusters. So it was up. Um, 37% year over year, uh, for Q4, I think it was up 40%. So that, that's a, a, a huge, highly profitable business that's continuing to, um, to go well. Like I, you know, uh, I think their total, uh, revenue was like 18.40, uh, 4 billion, which was above the consensus. Um, and, you know, unlike a lot of the other businesses, uh, this is like a 35%. Uh, gross margin business. So that substantially beat, um, the expectations, which, uh, were like, uh, I think just under 30%. Um, and it's interesting, uh, and they didn't so much cover this in earnings, but in Andy Jassy's, uh, shareholder letter, uh, he spent a lot of time talking about some of the amazing innovations on silicone that, a- that Amazon's rolled out that have, dramatically improved their their efficiency on AWS. So it seems like they still have uh they feel like a lot of headroom to keep um driving their cost down even as demand for capacity is is uh growing really fast. So AWS continues to be a good story. I would say though uh don't sleep on the ads. And interestingly, they didn't talk a lot about ads in earnings. They didn't talk about ads in the the uh, shareholder call, um, but they sold $7.8 billion worth of ads in Q1, which is up 25% from last year at Q1. So not growing quite as fast as AWS. Um, but that does mean 30, uh, that their last 12 months, they sold almost $33 billion worth of ads. Um, and so a couple things to bear in mind, uh, that's, $33 billion at like 75% gross margin. So um, like a pretty, you know, appealing business, even compared to if you call AWS, like a $75 billion business at a 35% gross margin. Um, and, uh, you know, $33 billion in ads. Uh, Twitter just sold for $44 billion and they sell less than $5 billion a year in ads. So 
so that that is a highly profitable and still strongly growing business. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of doesn't get enough sunshine, I think, how big this is getting. Yeah, I will say every other retailer has noticed this, even if no one's talking about it. And so the uh, if, if the number one conversation I have with retailers is about inflation right now, the number two conversation I have is about retail media networks, which is code for like part of the way we'll deal with inflation is we'll get more money from the manufacturers. Yeah. And uh, again, I kind of circle back to those Apple changes when when Apple gets sort of all this tracking, the companies that are best positioned to, you know, to benefit from that have closed loop data, which is retail retailers because they have that transactional data. And, you know, I think that Apple change is, is one of the unintended consequences. It's going to make Amazon's ad business huge um, at the detriment of, of Facebook and Snapchat and, and Twitter and those kind of companies, but then also Walmart and target and anyone that has, you know, hundreds of millions of people coming in there and, and, and doing closed loop transactions now is in a better position to build an ad network than Facebook, who was, you know, so dominant for so long. Oh, hundred percent. And, uh, if, if any of these social networks, like, uh, you know, really start to lose value because of these challenges, like don't sleep on, on seeing a retailer acquire them, right? Because, what you do is you swoop in with all that first party data and uh, acquire that network in China. A lot of the big social networks are, are owned or aligned um, by big retailers. And if you remember when uh, um, ByteDance was going to have to sell TikTok, like it was a bunch of retailers lining up to, to be involved in that transaction. So uh, yeah, you know, that first party data that the retailers own uh, is, is very valuable and you, you can expect they're going to look for multiple ways to, to monetize that, um, you did tease one other uh, uh, takeaway from the the uh, the Q and A after the uh, uh, earnings were released. Um, was Andy? Uh, they mentioned that that uh, the rate of Prime memberships is is now growing faster than pre pandemic, um, which that was a surprising bit of good news to me because I think they they disclosed there are over two hundred million Prime members now, so you would. Uh, assume like 60% of that's in the U.S. That's pretty good saturation in the U.S. market. You would expect the rate of growth to to slow. And then with all these macros and consumer confidence going down, you would expect people to be cutting back on these, uh, uh, you know, kind of optional subscription services. And so, you know, apparently uh, Jack Reacher and uh, the marvelous Miss Maisel are good enough uh, that, that uh, Prime is continuing to kill it. Jack Reacher is beyond good. It was excellent. Absolutely. Uh, I saw a few people that said uh, their new use for for Twitter is just to propose changes, uh, to propose plots for Jack Reacher season two. So I think that was funny. (laughs) Cool. And then uh, with Wall Street, it's always not what have you done for me today, but what's the future look like? And so all eyes were on Amazon's forward guidance, which was – you know, kind of a, so this, this quarter in wall street, they kind of use this, what'd you do this quarter and what's your projection? And this would be a miss and lower kind of quarter, which is like the death quadrant of, of results. So uh, the forward forward guidance, wall street had a consensus of 125 billion for the top line and Amazon's range came in well below that. Their range was 116 to 121. 
which let's see it. 25. So 18 and a half kind of in the middle um, versus Wall Street was expecting 125 um, as kind of where they thought things would be. Uh, and then gap operating income, Amazon said will be minus a billion to 3 billion positive. And Wall Street had a consensus there of 6.7 billion. So, so they basically took down the top line by uh, a good 7 billion-ish, and then the midpoint of operating income by another 4 billion. (laughs) So, uh, you know, this could begin, I I mentioned Facebook kind of kitchen synced it in fourth quarter. If you're, if you're the CEO of Amazon and you're relatively new on the job, this is a good time. If you're going to have a bad quarter, you might as well lower expectations and make the rest of the year easy for you. And I, I feel like there's a little bit of that in there, but, but again, you know, maybe they also, they see all these things going on macro and it's also a good time to be really conservative on guidance because you don't want to, you don't want to be the one cheery voice out there and then, then miss it. And, and, and that that's cataclysmic in the wall street world. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. Yeah. So having done, I don't know how many of these we've been doing this, so we've probably done 20 to 30 of these kinds of shows. And this is, you know, this is except for that, you know, that, that, uh, well, as long as I've been watching Amazon, except for those 08, 09 years, this is, this is, this is kind of a rough one. So it's going to be interesting to see how the market reacts tomorrow. After hours, things were down about 9%. And, you know, this is a $1.5 trillion market cap company. And when it's down 10%, that's $150 billion. So it's like losing three Shopify's, uh, kind of to put it in that, that context. So it's going to be interesting to see how the market reacts tomorrow. And, and if it causes a broader concern, uh, Shopify hasn't reported yet. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And then, yeah. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how wall street reacts to this. Indeed. So, uh, what, what other news did you want to talk about, Scott? Yeah. Well, it is interesting to think about Shopify because in this world with the Apple privacy, you and I have talked a long time. This may have, I have to go back at my holiday predictions. Shopify is in a really rough spot right now. So they, um, so on one side, many of their merchants were using Facebook to advertise and that was really efficient. So that's been cut off. Now there's been articles talking about how Facebook really wants closed loop data. They don't have it. So the best way to build it is to, to have that closed loop data is for Facebook to build out a shopping platform. So there's a lot of talk about friction between Shopify and Facebook. Um, you know, if you're Facebook buying Shopify, it just makes that easy. But Shopify, Toby at Shopify has kind of famously never wanted to sell the company and wants to stay independent. So you could see a day where Shopify's best partner, Facebook becomes their biggest competitor. So that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. So that's one, one attack front Shopify has kind of coming. The other one is Amazon. And, uh, you and I have talked on the podcast where for the longest time, Shopify has been poking the bear at Amazon. And, you know, I've been at this 27 years and anyone that has ever thumped Amazon on the nose has not really survived that. And so, so, so I think that's coming back to roost here because Amazon seems to have a, a, a lot of programs targeted at, you know, taking the GMV back from, from Shopify that's over there. One of the ones I found most interesting is this idea of buy with prime. Now a, you know, skeptic would say Amazon's tried these buy things for a long time. They've never worked. What they've lacked in my opinion is 
um, as a merchant out there, you know, having a new payment thing, you, you kind of famously have that NASCAR logo thing that you do. And, and, you know, it doesn't really move the needle at this point. There's so many payment options and there's already buy, you know, pay with Amazon. And this, this program isn't there. So I'm, I'm kind of reading the tea leaves here a little bit, but if I'm Amazon and I can go to a small merchant and say, all right, if you add this, this buy with prime, we are also going to add you into the discovery side and expose you to all of our prime members. That starts to get really interesting because now you're bringing me new customers. And I think, I think that's where Amazon's going to go with this quote unquote buy with prime new thing. And that, that is a perfect, this is a perfect time to offer that because if you've, you're a Shopify merchant and you're reeling because you, you've lost all this Facebook traffic and then suddenly Amazon throws you a life preserver, you're going to take that life preserver, even if Amazon's going to see some of your data. And, you know, and then it's really interesting because if you're Shopify, do you block that? Like, do you stop your merchants from taking this? And it, it's a, it's a bit of a Gordian knot that they've put them in here that, that it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, one reaction to all this is we talked about it on the show last quarter Shopify announced they were going to spend a billion dollars to, to really beef up their delivery. And I kind of mocked that because Amazon spent like 200 billion. So, so to, to think you're going to compete with Amazon in some material way with a billion dollars is, is kind of not serious. Well, they did acquire a company called deliver and which has an extra R. I don't know if how you say it deliver and, um, you know, that's interesting, but, and I think they paid like 3 billion. So they are starting to get pretty serious about this. Um, and I think they, they now see that Amazon is going to turn their logistics network on, on, on them, um, and leverage that side, the delivery side and the supply side, the traffic side to, to hammer them. Um, the thing that, that makes me nervous about this, these networks that are just built on existing 3PL infrastructures out there, they're not going to really solve a lot of problems because, you know, Amazon's got 200 plus fulfillment centers and you know, thousands of DSPs doing last mile delivery and just building on existing old school 3PL infrastructures, even with a more friendly software, isn't going to solve the same economic problem that Amazon is. Yes, you may be able to get to two day shipping, but it's going to be like $12 and Amazon's going to be at like $3 at some point and they'll be able to offer that and they'll be able to go to merchants and say, the standards two days. Do you want to do this deliver networky thing that Shopify is doing for twelve dollars, or do you want to use our network for three dollars? And that obviously, you know, the choice is obvious in that world. So, so I think it's really fascinating to watch these really big titans battling it out in a way that that is changing very rapidly. And Amazon is really good using these these downdrafts to really hammer a competitor. And I think, I think we're going to see this year, they're going to get Shopify and a vice. And I, you know, it'd be interesting to see if Shopify can get out of that. Yeah, no, uh, I think your analysis is spot on. I do want to clarify or clean up a couple of things. Uh, the last I heard, they, they actually haven't closed the deal with deliver. Like, so I, uh, you may have more recent information than me, but uh, I read like there are a lot of reports that they're in talks and that there's like a a two billion dollar um, price on the table. But I don't think they actually announced the acquisition yet. So maybe you might have you may have called that first. Oh, it was just yeah, it's still rumors at this point. Okay, I think they'll do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm uh, I'm assuming they're going to do it. So just for listeners that may not be quite uh, as in the loop, deliver is a three PL. Um, so, you know, they're a company you can hire to store your goods for you and ship them for you when you sell stuff. 
Um, and you know, part of their value prop is they can ship stuff, uh, from orders you get anywhere. So you get orders on Walmart marketplace, they'll ship them. You get orders on Amazon, they'll ship them. Um, you get orders on your own Shopify site, they'll ship them. And it, you know, if, if, uh, uh, Shopify is serious about uh, building out the logistics network. They they need some jump starts on these three PLs, so an acquisition would make sense. But to put things in perspective, the very best three PLs can kind of match Amazon service levels, and when they do, um, they they can be part of this program called um, vendor fulfilled Prime, which essentially means. We're going to ship just as fast as if we were in Amazon's network. And so Amazon's uh, going to, uh, you know, offer prime benefits for that shipment. Uh, Deliver is not a, a 3PL that has that status. So like when you talk about even if Shopify acquires them, this it's not going to put them in a position to compete with Amazon. I would say you're absolutely right. Like not only are they way smaller in scale, they uh, they don't have near, you know, they don't have the service level to to even get a uh, vendor fulfilled uh, prime. Um, and like all, almost all three PLs, they're dependent on the traditional parcel carriers to deliver the package. And they're, de- they're forced to pay the market rates for those deliveries. And Amazon just has this huge advantage from being able to deliver their own stuff. So um, not saying it's not smart for Shopify to acquire some three PLs and I'm sure they'll be able to leverage them, but that definitely is not going to make a fair fight with, with Amazon. And then, uh, you were, you were talking a little bit about Amazon's new offer, but I'm not sure we, we said exactly what it is. So last week, Amazon announced this new service called buy with prime. And what essentially it is, is it's taking app Amazon pay, um, and bundling it with, uh, what Amazon would call a fulfillment by Amazon, um, and and I think technically it would be F, uh, FBAM, which is, is it fulfilled by Amazon merchants. Um, and so this is a, a program Amazon hasn't offered very often and doesn't offer widely where you put your goods in Amazon's fulfillment center and you and Amazon will ship goods for orders that didn't happen on Amazon. So so ordinarily, you can only put goods in Amazon's warehouse to fulfill orders that happened on Amazon. So if you sell something on Shopify... You have to store those goods uh, somewhere else and you have to have kind of your inventory split. But um, implied in this buy with Prime is they did this clever bundling of, uh, hey, we'll let you fulfill orders that happen elsewhere. So that could be on Facebook or on Instagram or TikTok or on Shopify. And we'll bundle it with um, the Apple Pay or I'm sorry, Amazon Pay and we'll give you the badging. So it essentially, if there's a Prime member shopping on your website, They'll see a thing saying, hey, get the f- same fast delivery you're used to, you know, same day delivery or next day or two day for free. Don't have to type any of your payment information. Don't have to pick any of your shipping addresses because we have all that. Um, it's a dramatically lower friction checkout. And it's it's going to be super appealing uh, for a bunch of sellers, especially if you sell on your own site and you sell on Amazon it's going to be really appealing and it's kind of a deal with the devil because you are giving more data to Amazon and you are making Amazon a a stronger potential competitor. But I think it's going to be hard for a a lot of people to turn it down. I think the only thing that makes it, I think it's a death blow to a lot of three PLs out there. The only thing that I think makes it not completely devastating is that um, 
they will only uh it will only work for prime members so uh you couldn't for example launch a shopify site and say buy with prime is my only checkout flow because you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to sell anything to non-prime members so you still need an alternative solution for non-prime members but if amazon ever expanded this program like you know it that that would become super devastating uh uh to a, a lot of of the 3pls and and uh, uh, folks that are looking to compete with Amazon in the space. And I just, I think it's a super scary slash clever way to both leverage that excess capacity that we just talked about and, you know, kind of um, pull up the ladder behind them, <laughs> you know, after the, <laughs> after they kind of use their their fulfillment as a competitive advantage to, to kind of, you know, acquire 200 million Prime members. Now they make it way harder to compete with them by by you know letting letting people use that service wherever they want to shop. Yeah, yeah. The one thing I'm still trying to get my arms around is I think Deliver started building fulfillment centers and then they decided I think they have one or two and I think the rest of their network ended up being a network and not ones that they own and operate. So I don't think they really bring into the world new delivery capability or yeah, capacity. Yeah, no, I, I, as far as I'm aware, they don't either. So I think we agree. Yep. Yeah. So I do think that's big news. Uh, I, I think there's going to be a lot of talk about it. One, one kind of niche use case, but you know, there's a lot of established brands that only sell through wholesale and they're all secretly figuring out how they sell, how they add a direct to consumer component. And, and, uh, this, this, w- this offering is going to be right in all their wheelhouse, right? Like if, if you're a big brand and you suddenly need to figure out how to, and you're used to shipping pallets to Walmart and you suddenly need to figure out how to fulfill eaches and you already have a bunch of inventory at Amazon, um, it's going to be super appealing to just say, let's use Amazon for everything. Yeah. And then um, you beat me to the punch and you read the shareholder annual letter. I have not had a chance to read that. What what was uh, interesting in there? Yeah. Well, a uh, quick reminder for listeners, uh, Jeff Bezos wrote the shareholder letter every year. The 1997 one was particularly amazing. And, and, uh, in fact, Jeff agrees with me on that. So every year since then, he recopies the, the 1997 <laughs> shareholder letter in it. Um, so this was a point of particular interest to me because this was the first shareholder letter written by someone other than Jeff Bezos. Um, and so Andy Jassy, the new CEO. And, uh, I think it, it very much follows the, the kind of pattern in the cadence of the tr- typical Amazon shareholder letters up to and including having the 1997 letter uh, embedded in it at the bottom. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say there were any huge revelations or, or huge new takeaways um, from, from the letter. Like uh, a, a lot of the letter talked about, kind of the iterative nature of uh, all of these successful services that Amazon launched. So he kind of painted the picture that like people imagine that, you know, uh, Kindle was just born as this amazing fully formed business or AWS was an amazing business. And he talked about how the first versions of all those services were pretty mediocre. Right. And he, he used this term that a a few others have used uh, minimum lovable product. And he kind of paints the picture about how they, evolve like how they launched um aws and it was very barely useful because they they couldn't offer both compute and storage which most people tend to need and storage was going to take another year and a half so they launched compute without storage 
um, and then later added storage and then later added their own silicon and how each of those iterative steps made it a much more powerful offering uh, uh, until it reached today's juggernaut and similar stories for Alexa and and Prime and a bunch of these other things. So he was kind of painting this this picture about how things iterate. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking uh, <laughs> my my uh, Alexa is disagreeing with me. Um, the in the back of my mind, I'm thinking he's setting us up for some of his initial uh, initiatives being kind of mediocre at first. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's really where he's going. Um, but then he did kind of highlight the autonomous teams principle that we've talked about several times on this show. Um, he talked about how important it is to expect and accept failure that you really you know can't be successful um, if you don't have some failures. And while that sounds obvious, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to potential clients that, you know, said, Hey, we want to do some crazy innovation, but we can't afford to fail. And that, you know, seems like a recipe for disaster. So I, I do appreciate that advice. And then this may be really niche, but he did, he talked a little bit about their, um, their press release and their six page narrative, um, principle that they use. And we've talked about this before. Like, so you go to a meeting and you read the six page narrative for a new idea. And at the back of that narrative, they have a press release that is kind of written to paint a picture of the press release. They'll be able to, to issue if this initiative is successful. So it's kind of begin with the end in mind idea. And in this Cheryl, the letter, he also alluded to that they now make you write. They frequently ask questions. Um, to go with that press release, which uh, I hadn't heard that before, and I thought that was interesting. So, so those were kind of the 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 main recap of the the shareholder letter. But uh, you know, if you haven't, if you have a few moments, I would definitely it's worth a, a quick read and checking it out. Did he explain why they do the frequent ask question? He did not. He just referenced it, and and maybe uh, maybe one of my Amazonian friends will correct me, but I feel like most of the the kind of external stories about that process have focused on the narrative and the, the press release. And I just had never heard uh, the Q and a being part of the, uh, or the FAQ being part of that, uh, that package before. So I just thought hmm. that was an interesting, interesting tidbit. Okay. Very cool. Any other e-commerce news you want to cover? Uh, you know, there's always more stuff we could talk about, but the good news is we always have more shows. Um, and uh, it has happened again. We've used up more than our, uh, a lot of time for this episode. So, uh, I think we should probably call it quits. So let everyone get off the exercise bike. Uh, hopefully write us that, that five star review and we'll pick up some of the other, uh, exciting industry news in the next show. Thanks everyone. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 